This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by the PATHS program, providing flexible and engaging social-emotional learning curricula, implementation support, and training worldwide. PATHS is the sole source provider of the PATHS curriculum, the CASEL Select program for preschool through fifth grade, and the Emozi SEL program for middle and high school students. PATHS CEO, Dr. Annalisa Mackey, has over 20 years of experience in SEL training and professional development, student behavior, and academic performance. Annalisa is the author of the Emozi program, a research-informed and culturally relevant SEL program designed for the needs of middle and high school students. She's also the co-author of the book, The Social-Emotional Classroom, A New Way to Nurture Students and Understand the Brain. And she's the host of The Social-Emotional Us podcast. You can find PATHS curriculums at edcuration.com and links to resources in today's episode notes. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. I've had at least 15 students who have increased more than four grade levels. He used theater as a tool to make great human beings. My expectations are high for all of them. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange. The number of people who say that they have no one to talk to about difficult subjects has tripled in the last few decades. Our guest today, Charles Vogel, is working to change that. He's an advisor, speaker, and the author of three books, including the international bestseller, The Art of Community. His work reflects a calling to help leadership create a culture of belonging in the most lonely era of organizational history. Drawing on 3,000 years of spiritual traditions, Charles teaches the wisdom and principles to build deep community and resilient relationships that foster innovation and integrity within organizations around the world. His work is used to advise and develop leadership worldwide within organizations, including Google, Airbnb, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitch, Amazon, and even the U.S. Army. And in this time when so many schools and districts are focusing on school climate and social-emotional learning, he works with educational leaders to accomplish those objectives through building healthy community. So Charles Vogel, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. So I was hoping that um, as we get started here, you could just share a little bit with our listeners about your work, specifically in education and school reform. Our audience is primarily K-12 educators, and so I'd love for them to have a picture of that. Well, my work has to do with how we in leadership roles, be that formal or informal, connect people around shared values and purpose into what we call community. I found that schools have really embraced my work because teachers are on the front lines of recognizing we're in the loneliest time maybe ever, certainly in American history, and how much students and faculty and parents want to be more connected than the institutions they're participating with largely know how to do that when going around doing business as usual. And how, what is the nature of your work with schools? How, what does that look like? Well, I've done a number of workshops for faculty and parent uh, groups around the country. 
And then I've advised enough organizations that want to invest in bringing together parents and students in ways that are more innovative and hopefully fulfilling than they have been in the past. So you focus a lot on community and you talked about it just a minute ago. Um, can you talk about how you, what differentiates a community from a group or an organization? What are the universal features? I'm glad you asked that because this is typically counterintuitive for many people. So I define a, a community as a group of people who share mutual concern for one another. And this is different from a group because in a group might be just people who, for example, all go to the same school or who all are volunteering for the same event or all who've been hired on the same staff. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they haven't yet knitted together relationships that uh, grow mutual concern. And that might happen, but usually it's not inevitable. Usually, if not in fact always, someone has to invest in the tools and the experiences and the contexts that facilitate those relationships being knitted together. In many cases, Chris, the people get lucky, right? And there's the people there and they feel comfortable enough and the circumstances are such that those relationships seem to naturally occur. Typically, especially during a pandemic, uh, that doesn't naturally occur. And what really happens is you have a bunch of people all together feeling isolated, feeling alone, um, not convinced that the people around them actually care about them, even if they do. And I know that many people will feel that at work. They start a new job, they're thrown into an agenda, they have responsibilities, they have to report to somebody, but there aren't the experiences that help them feel seen and understood and cared for by other people. And you and I know that it's not rocket science. When people actually feel connected, when they feel others are concerned about them, all kinds of good stuff happens. Innovation happens because you can take risks. Uh, problems get solved outside of the formal chain of command because that formal administrative system might get jammed up somewhere and someone can just simply make a phone call and say, hey, could you resolve this? Or did you know? Or I just want to warn you about. And all of a sudden things start moving more smoothly because those relationships are in place. And for certainly for institutions that want to be the best in the field. And so investing in those relationships can help organizations become more resilient when problems come up and then innovate faster in a world that's changing rapidly. And I don't know if the world has changed any more rapidly than for teachers who have to now find whole new ways to teach and relate to students and serve people and take care of themselves. And all the rules that applied five years ago largely don't apply now. So if there's ever a time for relationships to support innovation, it's now. Yeah, and that's been a particular challenge during the pandemic. And I would say in general, that we as educators are better at creating that sense of community in, in primary and elementary school because the kids spend their whole day as a community in a classroom and they do all of their activities together. But in secondary school, it becomes much more of a challenge. So I want to go back to that later and talk about what are kind of some of the tips and tools that teachers can use to, to foster more community in their classrooms. But first, can you just talk a little bit about what are the features of a healthy community? Because there are unhealthy ones as well. There are many features. We can talk about just a few here. One is a community has a strong boundary which is to say the people in the community know who's inside and who's out. And that's very counterintuitive for many people. They think, well, if you're a community builder, you must invite everybody in all the time to everything. And that's exactly the opposite. And Christy, let me explain that. If you don't know who's in your community, it's very difficult, if not impossible, then to invest in the relationships for the people in the community. But we're not encouraging people to create boundaries just to keep people, some people on the outside and some people on the inside. In communities, they come together around shared values and purpose, at least one. And if there isn't a shared value and purpose, then your community is not going to work. Hopefully in schools, the shared value and purpose is creating a safe environment where people can learn to be who they want to be. 
I don't know about you, but in most of the schools and educational communities where I've worked, the shared value and purpose has been more assumed than stated. And this is from the district all the way down to the classroom. An assumed purpose has very little chance of being shared or consistent. It holds no power. On the other hand, how empowering would it be for students to agree on a stated set of shared values and purpose rather than just on classroom behavior contracts or group norms, which are also important, but it's the difference between simply what is expected of me as a student in this space and what is the reason I'm a student in this space with these people and why does it matter? One of the things we've seen in all uh, successful communities is what we call intimate events. If you think about all the groups you've been connected to and you felt seen and understood and you, you wanted to spend more time with them, you always had intimate experiences that made you feel seen and understood and made you want to come back. And it was just a few of the relationships in the big group that you felt connected to that let you understand that you were connected to a much bigger group. And the reason we need to understand that we're building community is we need to notice where and when are we inviting members to have an intimate experience with one to maybe four other people in a time where they have enough time to have a conversation that can be small, vulnerable, and about something they want to talk to. I'll give you a hint. When they have that time to connect an intimate experience to feel connected, they're not, uh, they're not executing somebody's agenda. They're invited to share about why they're there and who they are so they can notice that other people will recognize them and they feel welcome. I can't imagine that anybody listening isn't flooded with a sense of longing hearing mm. you talk about that intimate connection and those kinds of healthy communities. And yet, as a society, we're becoming more and more disconnected. In your research, you talk about that Americans live in the most lonely time, most disconnected era, and that was even prior to COVID, which yeah. now we're in even greater sense of isolation. And a lot of my friends and I are noticing that we've all become a little bit more socially awkward. We're kind of out of practice of being together with each other. I'm just wondering, and I mean, I have a sense of what your answer might be to this question, but how have we become so disconnected in such a short amount of time? So I'm going to put aside the pandemic because everybody listening has lived through that. And we just know what a horror this has been for We know what that did to us. Yeah. So we'll talk about bigger macro. And I like to reference at least three large forces that's going on. The first one is that Americans are moving more than probably any generation in the history of the world. Uh, I don't have the statistic right on hand, and it really isn't important. What's important is that you recognize that you're probably moving than any generation before, and your friends are moving. And every time we do that, we're separating ourselves from the people mm -hmm. who care about us, the relationships we develop to perhaps start again. The second one is Americans are largely leaving their home faith traditions, unfortunately, often for very good reasons. It also means that as opposed to the 1970s, Americans aren't gathering, say, weekly with people who share their values to build relationships that uh, continue on for maybe a whole generation. And along with that, the rituals that communities celebrate together to acknowledge and recognize how we're changing in a faith institution. And lastly, the elephant that we all know about, the impact of social media. Uh, social media is fantastic about connecting us with lots of people who don't care about us. It's really lousy about connecting us deeply with people we really do care about. And we look at the hours spent on social media from age, say, 15 to 35, and we add those up and think that some percentage of those hours 
were hours we didn't spend person to person having intimate long conversation, you can see how that changes the whole life. And then I think there's a conflation with social media and connecting with people in intimate ways that create friendships. And uh, people think that they're inventing investing in friendships online when really it's just largely noise. And we know the research is pretty clear. There's a correlation between spending time on social media and unhappiness. And if we want to become more happy, more connected with more friends, that means less social media. So what is, aside from maybe, maybe weaning ourselves away more and more from social media, what are some of the other things that are stopping us from connecting? Because people are saying that they want connection and that they're longing for connection as much as or more than ever, they're missing that connection. So what is stopping us? Have we just forgotten how? I think there's many things, Christy. The first thing I want to talk about here is overwhelmingly fear. Uh, just today, uh, I have a friend who is a single parent. She's been getting through a pandemic with a toddler and she's in a really bad place. And knowing that, I then reached out to several of our mutual friends and said, it'd be really great if they reached out and expressed concern and just let her know they're thinking about her and they want her to be successful. And one of those friends wrote back and said, oh, instead of calling, I just put a note on social media as a comment because I didn't want to call and upset her. I don't know what's going on there, but here's what I know. I don't know any parent who would be upset by a genuine friend calling to say, I heard you're having a hard time because you're a parent in a pandemic and I want you to know, thinking about you. I, I can't imagine a parent getting upset by that phone call. And yet here's a genuine friend not making a phone call because they're afraid to do it. And less than a five minute conversation, somebody who's feeling alone, feeling disconnected, maybe even feeling desperate might feel better. And I want you to recognize that power. Because as soon as you have it in far less than five minutes, you can make a difference for somebody. So said differently, I think one of the challenges is we regularly don't recognize how much other people want to hear from us. I observe this all the time among my own peer group, this reluctance to have a direct conversation versus text or social media. And this feeling that a phone call is somehow intrusive or too aggressive. It's worse among my children and students. We are losing the skills of conversation and connection. Listening to Charles got me thinking that if your current social emotional learning curriculum and practices have students working more on a screen or on worksheets, rather than fostering actual human interaction, eye contact, and small group sharing, then it's probably a waste of your time and money. Social learning can only happen in a social setting, in community. So I'm curious how you are seeing various organizations adopt and manifest the principles and practices of community in new ways, especially considering the fact that, like you mentioned, people are moving away from their faith tradition. So we're needing to find these connections in other places. How are you seeing that happen? Uh, there is an effort to bring people together in Zoom rooms during the pandemic that, uh, give people a chance to have a conversation that's perhaps personal and not agenda driven. Yeah. The big mistake that I see happen, which I want to mention here is make those rooms too big. Anything over five people uh, is really not uh, intimate enough space to have a conversation that's really meaningful. If you think of every party you've ever been to Christy, uh, you never went up to 12 people right. and stood amongst them for a full hour and shared anything personal, especially if you weren't already super connected. It just never happened. So one effort is to notice where are we giving opportunities to come together in small rooms to have that. 
another opportunity is just to recognize that in-person meetings matter. Anybody who hears that nods and says, yes, of course, that's true. But the irony is I'm not seeing consistent investment for that relative to our intuitive sense. It makes a profound difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working with an organization and there was some conflict that arose on a project and uh, emotions got hot. And I got a call from one of my colleagues. We had actually been together at an event and we had talked interpersonally one-on-one. Uh, I think uh, some total of one time. And that one conversation was a relationship anchor that gave him confidence and called me when emotions got hot months over a year later. And I was able to point out the importance of that one conversation because it was helping us smooth out problems over a year later. And when I see leaders recognizing the profound importance of those connections, then they'll start investing consistent with that. But I don't see that. And I think it's because we think of leadership as agenda-driven. And I think that in, in much of the leadership education, there has been dismissal of the investment in the interpersonal relationships that handle the agenda when things get rocky. Well, so you're the less one of the lessons I'm taking away from the story that you just told is that it doesn't require as much as we think it requires. This person felt like they had a really good connection with you after having had one conversation. So maybe it's not as hard as we think it is. But I'm also wondering about this idea that probably you know, businesses have, and then I know educators have, is that we got to get down to business, right? We, we don't have time for all this connection fluff. And so I'm wondering if that's ever valid. Is this idea of fostering connectedness ever detrimental to the goals and the agenda? Or is the agenda always enhanced and always helped by connection first? Well, Christy, let's, let's look at that. Um, counterfactual. If you never invest in connecting the people important to you, be that you know spiritual organization, philanthropic, political, or commercial, if you never invest, what do you think that's going to look like when things get rough? Okay. And if, if you think the answer is we're going to be resilient, we're going to be creative, and we're going to be mutually supportive, then you actually haven't showed up to see what actually happens in the world. So it's just a matter of acknowledging um, how resilient you want your team. And if you don't invest in that, you're going to get results consistent with that. Many teams do, and uh, people are miserable. And then here's what really happens, Christy. I live in Silicon Valley. The good people leave. And the good people leave because they can't, because they don't ground people they're not connected with who don't care about them and things are tough. Why would they stay for 10 minutes? You know who stays, Christy? The people who don't have better options. And they're willing to work at some place where people don't care about them. They're not connected and they're miserable. So what advice would you give for teachers who have kids coming back in their classroom? They're, they're facing a lot of learning loss and they're feeling like we just need to get focused on academics. We need to up the rigor. We need to get these kids moving along the, con, um, the continuum. And yet they've got a classroom full of kids who have lived through a year and a half of trauma, um, but they're panicked about getting them back up to grade level. So, Christy, I'm not going to tell teachers how to do what they do well, and I don't do it all. I can speak the fact that we know that if someone wants to feel comfortable, such that they can focus, they can handle whatever emotions are coming up when their family may be have final, their family may have financial devastation, 
their friends may have moved away, may have lost family members to a pandemic. Uh, I know that happens in small groups. And so if we want to build that emotional resilience, we need to give people, faculty and students, time in small groups where the agenda is to learn about each other. So that when other things come up that would distract us, those relationships are there to support one another. And it's not rocket science. This is Annalisa Mackey, author of the Emoji Program for Middle School and CEO of Paz Program LLC. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. We are passionate about providing professional development to teachers and comprehensive, culturally relevant social-emotional learning curricula to students around the world. You can find PATHS and their SEL programs for each grade band, along with their training and support for educators at edcuration.com. And now back to Charles. My work is about bringing what I call distinctions and principles. I don't know how to make a classroom work, and that's why nobody asked me to do it. I do understand the principles that we need to put in place, bring people together, such that they care about each other. So I can teach workshops. And then when participants are participating, they can feel what happens when we bring those principles in the room. They can notice at one point in my workshops is the point where I turn to the room and say, at this professional event, how many of you are shocked how connected you're feeling with the people around you? And inevitably, almost all the hands go up. And, and the point is to notice when we put these principles in place, boom, it happens. And now that you recognize the principles, you're going to have to apply them where you're an expert because you're going to be using the principles in that context. You're not going to be following a checklist by some community expert who thinks he knows how your school or your classroom should run. Will you describe, give us a picture of the room in your workshop? What are you actually doing and what are participants doing? We always set the context of the room to be clear about what we're doing here, what we're doing in the room together, or said differently, I'm acknowledging the values and principles that brought us together. And then I invite experiences. I invite them to share an experiences they recognize in their life where those principles already showed up in their life, they didn't recognize it. So where was the time where you, there was a group where you felt really connected and supported in? And who brought them together? Who was the gatekeeper that brought people in? And then what was that value principle that you now recognize brought you together? And then when we recognize these principles that are been playing out when we've been connected, then we can better recognize how can we use that principle to bring people together in the future that we want to bring together. And we always make sure that this is an emotionally resonant experience because you know better than I do, Christy, that emotional resonance is what helps us remember what's important and carry it out of the room. So it's not just a fun thing I did with an expert. Yeah. So you've, you've talked about your principles a lot. And for mm-hmm. the sake of our listeners, I want us to break those down a little bit. You write about the seven principles of belonging. Um, they include things like initiations, rituals, temples, and symbols. And those aren't typically things that we associate with education or educational settings. But how can we adopt some of those principles in our educational settings, in our classrooms? Well, I think there's an infinite number of ways, Christy, because every school and every faculty um, team is different. I'll give you an example of where I was pleasantly surprised some surprised me. I gave a workshop for educators in New York, and afterwards someone came up and we had discussed the temple principle, this idea that there's a place, a sacred place, sacred being set aside place, for us to come together with the people who share our values and purpose. And he said, oh my goodness, I now understand why we've been failing 
This educator reflected on how the diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the peer learning community groups within his school had never been very successful or productive, and he realized that they'd never been given a specific place or time to meet. We've just said, you all should get together, find a space and meet. And they never had a place that they could go to at a certain time and know they'd meet each other and that space would be there. It would be a sacred space protected for the time they were there. It was fantastic for me to for, for me to recognize that he could see how they could support them in a way they weren't by just acknowledging what makes a place important. It's a principle that supports you coming together and feeling seen. So I know that in schools, administrators can think, what is the place we're giving people to gather at the right time so that that reinforces the connection we want to build up? And in a classroom, that might look something like our morning circle. Sure. Or you know, our classroom, our weekly classroom discussion where we come together in the circle or we go sit in a certain corner of the room. So that's the temple principle. Will you talk a little bit about the rituals? So rituals are activities we make that have meaning for us. And in our era, one of the areas of rituals we've really missed out is rituals acknowledging our maturation, so-called rites of passage. One of the things we want in our community is we want the people who are important to us to notice how we're changing. And they're the obvious ones, from student to graduate, from single to married. You know, fair enough. But there's a hundred, a thousand other ways we've grown and changed that we want somebody in our lives, hopefully the people around us, to recognize I'm now different because I did this thing. I grew in this way. Or I had this loss. Obviously, graduations, marriages, and funerals are dramatic rituals, but we can use the same principle everywhere. When someone comes to a new school, when someone's leaving and they're going to have to say goodbye to friends, when someone has a divorce in their family, when, um, when someone tries out for something and they fail, like they have grown in the failure. And I don't think that we have a lot of ways of acknowledging that in our culture. I'm thinking too about this, the pandemic and the amount of loss that we all and our students have experienced. And we do this comparative suffering thing where I don't have any right to complain about the fact that I missed out on my daughter's graduation or whatever, because other people died, you know, and our losses are our losses. And so I'm thinking about creating ritual around the losses that students experienced over the last year and just letting those be acknowledged and validated. Christy, I love the way you said, I want those to be acknowledged. Because it's, it can simply be an acknowledgement. I'll tell you a ritual we do in my home. We share meals. Mm-hmm. And a ritual in our house, whenever the dessert course comes, uh, I always make sure we have a candle. Mm-hmm. And I put a candle in it. And sometimes more than once. One more, and very often more than one candle. And we use that time right before the dessert course to acknowledge what's changed in our lives perhaps well we've grown. It doesn't mean doesn't need to be dramatic. It can be put a bit on a house. It could it could be um, called parents for the first time in a year. Mm. And we allow guests to share how they've changed, something that's worth acknowledging. And then there's the extinguishing of the can candle. And all that is doing is acknowledging that we've crossed over some kind of boundary. And I have learned over the years that very often for our guests, this is the only experience in the year where someone has given them a moment to acknowledge how they're different. Mm -hmm. And it's so simple. It's so much fun. And it takes scant minutes. 
And you feel so connected afterward, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Uh, we had some friends bring their daughter over before the pandemic. And she had uh, made some artistic performance that for her was a big deal in high school. And guess what? It wasn't written up in the New York Times. <laughs> and we as a table could acknowledge that she had brought her artistry to this place where she made a big performance. Mm-hmm. And that had never happened for her before. Yeah. And in that family, we were the only people in the entire world to acknowledge she had earned her way to this place in her work. Wouldn't it be great if this happened everywhere? It would be so beautiful. It's that bearing witness that we all need for our celebrations and our losses. And the truth is a lot of our kiddos, our students, they're not getting that at home either. Mm-hmm. They live in a, you know, a home not to knock parents. We're all busy people. You know, we're working. We're just trying to get dinner on the table. And a lot of those things aren't necessarily a part of their days in their homes, making it all the more important to create space for those in our educational settings, because that's where kids are spending the majority of their time. So I know that you, you keep saying that you're not an educator and you don't want to tell teachers how to do their jobs, but if in your imagination, knowing what these kinds of rituals and these kinds of experiences look like and what they're built on, what would a community school look like? What would it sound like? What would it feel like? What would um, that experience be like? The best way to recognize a community, let me say it differently. It's most obvious when a community is present. Unfortunately, unfortunately, when disaster strikes, because that's when we see that people show up and express concern and help. And unfortunately, very often people start helping and then those who are helped are shocked that people care as much as they do. And what that tells me is, oh, so there was community there, but it wasn't present. The people didn't recognize that that was there. And what we really want is we want to recognize that people care about us before the disaster strikes. So there's a couple of measurables we can look at. One is when disaster strikes, there's a death or some violence. Uh, are people showing up to help? Hopefully the answer is yes. Another distinction I like to bring forward in my workshops is this idea of a 3 a.m. friend. This idea is if you have an emergency at 3 a.m., who are the people in your life that if you don't call them, that's going to be a problem for them? Because you rob them the chance to be the friend they want to be. Yeah. And they're going to feel like, how did I not know this? Why did... Yeah. Yeah. How did you not call me when your house flooded and you were cold yeah. and without a home that night? How did you not mm-hmm. call me? You, you robbed me the chance of driving to pick you up with dry clothes and bringing you home because you didn't yeah. call. Hopefully we all have a 3M friends. I know that that is not true, but we can start here. We can, we can say, well, who are the people in your life, Christy? that if they have a problem at 3 a.m. and they don't call you, that that's a problem for you. And then my question to you is, do they know? Hmm. And we can start with calling those people and telling them, I heard this expert on community. One he told me to do was to call the people that I want to call me when they have a problem at 3 a.m. and let them know that I better get the phone call. And there is a version of that that you can do with with kids and with students. They might not be calling a friend at 3 a.m. because they're parents who are going to deal with things. But like when something big happens, who in this classroom are the ones that you want to know, that you want to celebrate with or that you want to comfort you, you know, and and we can foster those kinds of connections for them and create that Mm -hmm. same experience that you just described. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
And I, I totally agree with you, Christy. And I also know stories of friends of mine in their adolescence where home was not a safe place. And having that friend within a walk or bike distance that they could call 3M was a life-saving resource. And if uh, two people listening to us realize that they can make those phone calls to set up that context ready for the 3AM call, we call it, and that saves lives, and that's profoundly important. Yeah, I know that um, my, my team just went through Brene's Brown, Brene Brown's book, um, Dare to Lead, several months ago, and she takes her readers through this exercise of identifying who in your life you value their feedback. Who, ha- who are you inviting to give, to reflect to you, who you are, what you're good at, what your strengths are, where you need support, and then doing the same thing, letting them know you are part of this circle for me. I am inviting you. And so that they intentionally know that that gate or that door is open to them in your life in a, in a specific and purposeful way. Um, and students can do that as well. Who do you want feedback from in this classroom? Who do you trust to tell you um, who you are and what you're good at and how you need support? And when applying this, we can understand that principle of the intimate experience and ensure that they have an opportunity to have that conversation in a small group. I think we can safely assume, based on some of the research that you cite, um, like this medicine. I'm going to interrupt myself here because I mispronounced her name. And also, she's a big deal. And I want to tell you about Julianne Holt Lundstad, hyphenated. She's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, and she's studied the long-term health effects of social connection and isolation. This past year was like her petri dish. Anyway, she has a bunch of short, really engaging YouTube videos and at least one TED Talk, which I'll link in the notes. Super interesting. She wrote an article in Scientific American in 2010 called relationships boost survival by 50%. Let me say that title again, just to make sure it sinks in. Relationships boost survival by 50%. Charles quotes her research in his book, The Art of Community. And according to her research, more people say they don't have a single confidant than those who say they do. And so we can assume from that kind of research that this is something that we need to be teaching, fostering, modeling, because it doesn't just happen. It's not happening organically anymore. I'm wondering if you would tell our listeners about this work that you're doing called the Dean's Project. The Community Dean's Project grew of my realization that we are not only in the loneliness era, maybe American history, but the tools that bring us together are clearly not being applied in our culture now. Said differently, those of us who are sensible experts in this are totally failing. We might be succeeding in the very small group we're working with, but we're failing our culture. Which is to say, we don't know how to bring these tools, this understanding to our broader culture and make it relevant today. So I created an organization where we can invite experts who are hungry to get better at this, share who we're working with and recognizing where we're totally failing so that we can together build our resilience and build our understanding of how we can be more effective. And I would think that educators are somewhat uniquely positioned to have a a larger and broader impact in this area because of the fact that we are educating the next generation. Absolutely. The intention of this particular group is to have a really informed, high-level conversation. And so there's a lot of pre-reading involved. 
Uh, and that is a that is a heavy lift for American educators who I think are just trying to stay sane while they're serving dozens of other families through one of the most disruptive social events in a generation. And I do not expect hardworking teachers to have time to do that. Certainly, if uh, someone is willing to do the work and they have the bandwidth to work with us, uh, we want educators to be as effective as possible. Yeah, great. I'm wondering about another resource that you have as well, your book, Building Brand Communities. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about what educators might learn from that, what resources they might be able to apply in their settings? Absolutely. So Building Brand Communities is the follow-up to Art of Community. And it's a more granular discussion on how we can apply the principles and distinctions uh, described in art of community. And every school typically has a brand. A brand community is any group of people we bring together in community connected to a brand. So the faculty of a school is a brand community. They are people working together, hopefully care about one another, connected to the brand of the school. And um, we call it a brand community because when brand communities invest in a community, they want it to. We want they want the community to enrich the members. I.e., teachers should get better being teachers by being part of the community, and it needs to improve the organization, the brand. In this case, the school. If it's not improving the school, then that's not a good investment for the school. But hopefully, obviously, that'll happen. And those tools that we discuss make sure that both those things happen if used appropriately. And we also articulate the good things that happen when you're successful at this. And I've mentioned a few. Of in this conversation already. Resilience goes up, accidents go down, uh, absenteeism goes down. Why? Because you go to work and you solve problems with mm -hmm. your friends. It's not rocket science. Unfortunately, a lot of leaders need to have that spelled out for them so they can understand why this is a good investment. A great investment for organizations of all kinds, but especially schools where we are focusing heavily on social emotional learning, which can only be effective in the context of healthy adults, modeling healthy relationships in a community culture. You can find Charles's book, Building Brand Communities, along with its predecessor, The Art of Community, and his third book, Storytelling for Leadership, wherever books are sold. On his website, charlesvogel.com, V-O-G-L, you'll find free downloadable worksheets and articles that are ideal for peer learning communities, departments, or for the entire school community. Our sponsor today, Paths, also has great student-facing resources to support community and classrooms with SEL curriculums for each grade band. Dr. Leora Orenbuch, the school psychologist at Yavne Hebrew Academy says, the activities really allowed our students to fully understand how to integrate SEL skills into their everyday lives. I really believe that the Emozi curriculum has helped to decrease instances of exclusion, fighting among friends, and unhealthy habits, and has helped to increase inclusivity, healthy habits, and relationships among our middle school students. We have already ordered our workbooks for next year and are so excited to continue to be using the Emozi curriculum. We hope you learned something on this episode and that you will take advantage of all the linked resources. While you're scrolling through, we'd be so grateful if you would take a few seconds and give us a star rating. It helps other educators find us and helps us to keep introducing our listeners to amazing people doing great work in the world like Charles Vogel. If you have a topic or resource you'd like to share with our audience, reach out through our website. We'd love to welcome you here on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning. <music>